life was about to come to an end that spring in 1945. He's still addressing one particular group, said that he still felt like he could ultimately be victorious if he could complete his final solution, which was the extermination of all the Jews, of every Jew on the planet. Tonight we'll meet a man that is Hitler-esque in his intentions long before Adolf Hitler ever took a breath on this earth, and his name is Haman. And when we last left Esther, by the providence of God, she had just become the queen. Providence is God's activity resulting from his foresight. God both possesses and exercises absolute power over all the works of his hands. So it would actually be inappropriate to, to equate providence simply with omniscience. It's not correct to equate providence with knowledge. Providence is always equated with an action. An action that's based upon knowledge. So God's activity resulting from foresight, or more theologically put, God possess, both possesses and exercises absolute power over all the works of his hand. Esther became the queen in the wintertime of 479 to 478 B.C., four years after Vashti's removal from her position. During the intervening four-year period, you'll recall from our studies, Xerxes, the king of Persia, one of the most powerful men in all the world, had suffered an absolutely terrible, devastating defeat at the hands of the Greeks. Tonight, we observe another instance of God's providential workings in the life of the people at that time, in the life of his people at that time. First providential working was that Esther becomes queen. This orphan arises out of nowhere and becomes the queen of Persia. I don't know if you can remember back into the 1976 presidential election, but there was a fellow from Georgia, a governor from Georgia, that literally came out of nowhere to win that election. He was hardly known at all until a Newsweek article put him on the cover, and then all of a sudden he starts to become queen. But even in more dramatic fashion, Esther comes out of nowhere. She's a Jewish orphan comes up out of nowhere and is put in a position as the queen. That's providence. That's God working providentially in his people. It's he, him seeing things ahead of time and working in the things that he sees. Tonight we observe another instance of God's providential action alongside a plot by an evil person. An evil, vindictive, self-centered man has a plot to wipe out the entire Jewish race. And we'll be introduced to that plot tonight. Our narrative tonight begins in chapter 2, verse 21, with Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Since this is the place where the bulk of governmental activity, civil activity, takes place, we assume, although the text doesn't say, that Mordecai has been given some kind of official position with administrative duties whereby he has a reason to be sitting at the gate. Because in the ancient world, the gate was where the business of the city would normally take place. You see this in Israel, of course, but this wasn't just for Israel. This was for all over. These happened to be the Ishtar gates in Babylon. Now, I, I put this up. These are not the gates that are in question, but it looks kind of like the gates that are in question, so I put this up there. Actually, this gate is in a Pergamon Museum in Berlin now. It's completely reconstructed. The excavation of the King's Gate in Susa doesn't look quite so pretty. That's why I showed you this one first. 
the gate would have been right about here. This would have been the opening. The gate is right here, and the king's business would have taken place inside this courtyard area right in through here. But this is the actual spot where the Mordecai most likely sat, either right in through here or right along the sides where the business was done. This is what it would have probably looked like, although, again, this is, these are the Ustar gates from Babylon, not from Susa. But it would have looked something like this, quite ornate, quite spectacular. And when we see that someone is sitting at the gate, we'll see that in the study of David that we do not too long from now, that Absalom will be sitting in the gates. Well, this is the, kind of the courthouse. This is the meeting place where everybody uh, gathers. And so by the fact that he's sitting there, we assume that he's got some sort of providential appointment into a governmental position. It put him in a position, providentially, to overhear a plot against Xerxes, which he immediately then reports to his niece Esther. Esther then, in turn, reports this plot to her husband Xerxes, and the result is, we see in verse 23, now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, that they, these two men that were in the plot, that they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So we don't have the book of the Chronicles anymore, but we know that these men were hanged. John Martin actually reports that rather than being hanged by the neck on a modern-type gallows, these men were probably impaled on a stake or a post, as for Ezra chapter 6, verse 11. This was not an unusual method of execution in the Persian Empire. Again, I'm quoting Martin. Darius, Xerxes' father, was also known to have once impaled 3,000 men at one time. Whether it was hanging or impaling, they're dead, and they're dead because Mordecai was providentially in a position to overhear the information about the plot, reported it to Esther, and Esther reported it to the king. Herodotus records that Xerxes was careful to record the name, father, and town of anyone who demonstrated particular loyalty to his throne and to reward him quickly and generously. Well, that doesn't happen here. It was Xerxes' custom to immediately reward people that had helped him. But nothing happens, by the way, with respect to Mordecai. He doesn't get any kind of praise or reward for uncovering the plot. And there's nothing really here to indicate that Mordecai wanted to be honored. But I want you to keep this incident in mind. It's only a, it's a little throwaway. It looks like three verses that almost is inserted in here with no particular purpose. There is a particular purpose for these three verses being inserted at this time. So now I want you to store that information away that God has providentially put Mordecai in a position to overhear this. He'll be actually rewarded later on. But he's not going to be re rewarded right now. Providentially. Again, that word keeps coming up in Esther. People, some people don't like Esther because the word God is not mentioned. Prayer is not mentioned. Fasting is mentioned, but prayer is not mentioned. But the providence of God is on almost every page of Esther. Mordecai's being in the right place at the right time was not luck, not chance, or an accident. It was providential. And I would encourage you tonight to make this word a part of your vocabulary. Make it a part of your thought process. Because things don't just happen randomly. We live in a universe that is ordered by God. Our free will notwithstanding, God exercises complete control over his creation. 
one of the great subjects of discussion in theology is that how he does this, while still giving us free will, while still respecting our free will, he's not intimidated by free will. How he does it is a source of great theological debate, and I'm not here to try to settle that debate tonight, but I will tell you, he does do it. He does give us free will, and at the same time, he does exercise sovereign power. God is much bigger, much more intelligent, and much more powerful than we sometimes give him credit for. Our lives are not accidental. They are full of purpose. And an understanding and an appreciation of providence will go a long way toward us maintaining a proper perspective in life. It's not luck. It's not random. It's not an accident. God is providentially in control of our life 24-7. Doesn't mean that we don't have free will, but he factors even our free will into his providential control over circumstances. This is important because when difficult times come, and they will, some of you are going through difficult times tonight. I know you are. But when difficult times come, we can understand that God has not abandoned us. These difficult times didn't get past him. They weren't a surprise to him. We don't have to play and say, well, you know I'm in trouble. He already knows we're in trouble. He's fully aware we're in trouble. He knew we were in trouble before we were ever born, before we ever created the world. He knew exactly what kind of trouble we would be in today. And he also made provision for that. Now, that's providence. So not, uh, nothing is accidental, this random, this luck that Christians talk about. We need to substitute the word, well, wasn't that lucky? We need to substitute, wasn't that providential? If we do that, I think it's, it's not just going to be a, a small thing. I think it will help us to start retraining our brain by what we say with our mouth or what we even think. It will start retraining us to realize that God will not leave us and he will not forsake us. And when tough times come, we can remember that. Also, though, when good times come, we'll be more likely to pause and thank him for the blessing that we have. Rather than just thinking, well, that was just a random event. I don't have anybody to thank. Nobody did that for me. Or I did it all myself. So see, providence works both ways. If times are tough, we can rely upon, we can appreciate providence because we realize God hasn't left us. He's still working things out for his good, for ultimately for his good. And when times are great, we won't get the big head thinking that somehow I did this. So providence is an extremely important thing for Christians to understand. And it wouldn't hurt to recognize providence so that we can get on our knees and thank him from time to time for his providential care in our lives. Now, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the events of chapter 3 took place four years after Esther became queen. After these events, King Ahasuerus Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Perhaps made him something like a prime minister. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? When they had spoken daily to him that he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. In other words, he had told his friend he was a Jew. 
When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Haman is said to be an Agagite. Agag was also the name, if you'll recall, of the Amalekite king that Saul failed to execute. However, Agag, Agag is also the name of an area in Media that had become part of the Persian Empire. So we're not exactly sure how this, the fact that he's an Agagite, fits into this narrative. Mordecai did not necessarily have to worship Haman. Not even Persian kings demanded worship of their people. Xerxes had not commanded the other people in the king's court to worship Haman. All they had said was that, they, was that he was to show respect to Haman. And part of showing respect was, was bowing down. It would not have hurt Mordecai to bow down to Haman. Some people might say, well, it would have hurt him because he was a Jew and you know, go to the Daniel things, and we're going to you know, draw the line with this. We're not going to do any of this bowing down business. No, there would have been nothing wrong from the perspective of, me, of being a Jew to see to have him bow down and respect this man. Why Mordecai chooses not to bow down to Haman, it's really hard to figure out. Now, some people have postulated that the reason that he won't bow down to Haman is because he's an Agagite, and Jews hated the Amalekites. So therefore, that's why he's not bowing down, because he's still mad about the whole thing that happened with Saul way back. There's no proof at all that Haman was a descendant of this Amalekite king, especially now that archaeological discoveries have said that there was a region in media very close by there whereby this man could have come. Bottom line is, I have no idea. I have no idea why Mordecai was being so stubborn. It's not going to work out well for him. Both Esther and Mordecai remained behind while many of the Jews were killed. And that was actually in violation of Deuteronomy. It was also in violation of Isaiah and Jeremiah both that had told them to go back into captivity. We cannot make a case, even now, that either Mordecai or Esther are spiritual giants. Now, if you've read ahead, you know what happens when that happens. But one of the things that this part of the narrative teaches us is that Mordecai may very well have been wrong in not bowing down to Haman. Now, Haman was definitely wrong in his overreaction, wanting to kill all the Jews because of Haman. But God is still going to protect his people, even when they are in a state of rebellion and rebellion. Sometimes other people try to do it for them. Other people try to discipline the Jews for them. It doesn't work out. God will discipline his people in his timing, in his way. Thank you very much. It is in no one's best interest to get into God's way and to try to discipline the Jewish people on his behalf. It never works out. It never will work out because we have anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is one of the worst things that can start a nation. It will bring a nation down. So the reason for Mordecai's refusal to bow down before Haman is unclear, but he doesn't. And because Haman is extremely offended by this, he plots 
get rid of Mordecai, but to get rid of all the Jews that are presiding in Persian territory. And that's a lot of territory. And that lot of territory includes Jerusalem. This is a plot that's hitting the rest centuries and centuries and centuries before Hitler ever came on the scene. Haman wants these people dead. He wants Mordecai dead. He wants his people dead. He wants his family dead. He wants everybody knows Mordecai dead and everybody that shares the same bloodline as Mordecai dead. Adolf Hitler had nothing on Haman when it came to anti-Semitism. Let's look at verse 7 now and let's see what the plot is actually going to look like. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, of King Ahasuerus, Tur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from that day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. This is a little bit confusing or cumbersome. Haman cast a lot. It's T-U-R or T-U-R-U, Taru, is the Persian word for lot. T-U-R is the Hebrew word for lot. That's where we're going to come up with the Feast of Turim later on in this narrative. It comes from this. But Haman and people of his day often cast lots. In fact, I would say they frequently, regularly cast lots when they had a big decision coming up to decide when they're going to do something that's extremely important. So Haman cast lots. It would almost be like rolling dice, although they weren't exactly dice. Rolling dice to see if it comes up odd or even. Comes up even, we're going to attack on an even day. Comes up odd, we're going to attack on an odd day. Something like that. So Haman cast lots because this is what he does. It's a pagan superstition. These pag- the pagans of this time rarely did anything without a consulting their astrologer or casting lots. And this is exactly what they did. And it happens typically in that culture in the very first month of the year. So they kind of plan their year out. When he casts lots, what we find here is that the lot falls on the 12th month, which is interesting because the lot cast gives the Jews 12 months to find out about this and Mordecai is something opportunity to do something. Men may cast lots, but God is still providentially in control of everything. Haman then approaches Xerxes. He's got a, a year to plan this out. His plan is quite aggressive, though. Then Haman, this is verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. Now he's doing all this because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. I mean, this is a very small person. He's doing all of it because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. You notice Haman never mentions the fact that there's certain people or Jews, at least not at this point, not before he gets to the end. Why would that be? Well, perhaps maybe if you go all the way back to Cyrus and even Xerxes' father, these men issued edicts in favor of Haman. So maybe if Haman would have gone to the king and said, listen, I don't want to wipe out all the Jews, the king's going to say, well, I mean, I really hacked off about this. Why don't you just bring the one guy in here and I'll make him bow down to you? You know, something like that. But to wipe out a whole bunch of people, Haman had to use a bit of deception here. They do not observe the king's laws. It is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to put into the king's treasury. Again, this is a little bit cumbersome, but what Haman is proposing 
is that Gertrude's grant him a 10,000-talent budget for this activity. So put this in perspective. 10,000 talents, historians tell us, that 10,000 talents would have been approximately two-thirds of the entire Persian treasury. This man, you talk about over-budgeting. I think some commentators actually wonder if Haman had not spent some time in Washington, D.C. on vacation, where he learned how to ask for four or five or ten times the amount of money you really need to get the project accomplished. But whatever it is, he asked for a lot. It's a pretty big budget. But after all, it's going to be other people's money. It's not his money. So why not get as big a budget as he could possibly get? The thought also here is that Haman probably calculated that if he wiped out the entire Jewish race from the entirety of the Persian Empire, there's going to be a lot of wealth confiscated from them. There are people that are still wealthy today because of gold that was taken out of Jewish people's mouths and told to shut the Shabbat and burn their houses and burn their buildings. When Hitler did that, it wasn't the first time that that was ever done. Again, Hitler had nothing like Haman. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to put in the king's treasury. So all, he's saying, all this money's coming back to you in one way or another. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours, and the people also to do with them as you please. The imprint of an official's ring, a signet ring, was the equivalent of his signature. Since there wasn't a document, they didn't have a rose garden ceremony and certain pins to sign with, they used his signet ring. And that was the same as signing the document. So he's signing the contract, and this is an important thing. We're going to find out as the narrative goes on. This is very important. The king has given his okay, official okay, to this event. The, the words that are used, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, verse 16, they probably translate the legal formula that was used in the decree, which would probably have been as specific as possible. Haman doesn't want to take any chances. He doesn't want to get caught on any technicality. So lay it all out for me exactly what I should do. Also, we have to wonder, if all this property is going to be confiscated, you've got to figure a little bit of it's probably going to slip through the people's fingers and into Haman's hands as well. Follows my notebook here. We don't know what reasons Mordecai had for not buying the ring. Maybe he had misguided a misguided notion of what the Jewish law was. Very possible. He was living in Persia. There's certainly nothing here about them worshiping or taking in the law on a regular basis. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was stubbornness. Maybe he just didn't like it. Maybe, maybe Haman was tough. He certainly looked like it. So he said, I'm not going to bow down to this guy. Whatever it was, and his Jewishness had something to do with it, as per verse 4, whatever it was, it now seems to have backfired. And I'm sure Mordecai felt terrible about it. Because it's one, it would have been one thing for this to backfire and then the edict be, go get that Mordecai fellow, and we're going to impale him on that gallows as well. But when you do something and it backfires, it doesn't just have results to you. When it's got results that are far-reaching, you typically see a pretty bad thing. Here's 
that one. Sometimes I hear this silly thing. Well, that's a just a goldfish wife just with me, between me and her, between me and her. Got nothing to do with anybody else. Mind your own business. Well, wait a minute. These things have tendencies. Problems with alcohol or drugs or theft or whatever it may be, they don't just affect the person that's committing that particular sin. Their family, their friends, their churches, their city, their state, their country, that are affected by the behavior of the individuals within those churches. Whatever the reasons were, Mordecai regrets that his feud with Haman, whether legitimate or not, causes a great crisis for the whole nation. Verse 12, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written, just as Haman commanded the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its city, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with his signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. It looks like it was rather specific. Both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month. That's the day that came up when he cast the lot. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize the possessions of Haman. So this is not looking good at all. A copy of the edict was to be issued as law in every province. It was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. They got 12 months to do it. Are you noticing that? It's on the first month now that it's, it's issued. But the day of reckoning is going to be on the 12th month. By the way, the day 13th was considered unlucky even back then. Even back in the Persian culture, the date of the 13th was considered an unlucky day. The couriers went out and impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in the streets of the capital while the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was in confusion. Once this idea goes around, I don't think they had riots in the street like are happening in Egypt right now. But the whole city is in some sort of panic. They're wondering what in the world is going on here. That we're going to annihilate a whole group of people. Which is so un-Xerxes-like. I'm sure some commentator on some news station has heard this. Like, I don't know what's going in his mind. Or Haman's giving him bad advice. Whatever it was, even the people realized that this is not a really good idea. It caused a great crisis for the entire nation. Not just the Jews, but the whole nation. To put yourself in harm's way is one thing. To put someone else in harm's way so weighs so heavily on one's own conscience. So in verses four, 1 through 3 of chapter 4, Mordecai learned all that had been done. Now he learns fairly quickly. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. We don't do this today. Today, people go up to tall buildings and jump off or they go to a park and pull out a gun and end their lives that way. There's, there's some different cultural things. But this is what they did back then. They ripped their clothes. This, this is a sign of incredible distress. And then they put ashes on top of their head. They put on the poorest of clothes, sackcloth. And he went out in front of everybody and wept loudly. But he so regrets this. It's hard to say if he regrets not bowing down, but he's still kind of remaining stubborn and regrets that Haman's doing what he's doing. Certainly he's regretting that. 
He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So he couldn't even go back the way he used to work. And in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. This is the closest we come to the mention of prayer in Scripture. And the word prayer is not used. And by the way, fasting is not the same thing as prayer. Weeping is not the same thing as prayer. But it's at least implied here that people all throughout the provinces of Persia were praying to God for deliverance from this difficulty. Mordecai, on his part, is identifying himself to the public as one who is in great distress. Maybe he's remorseful because he revealed his nationality. Remember that back in verse 4 in chapter 3. Maybe he's remorseful. Before, they didn't even know he was a Jew. But the fact that he reveals himself as a Jew now has endangered all of his people. Everywhere Jews turn in the year, and everywhere they have the same Xerxes, the man who was kind of duped into this, is still, even after his defeat, in Abel-Balo's palace, he's still one of the most powerful men in the world. And his edict, you'd think, would be a cheerful one. But it's not. God doesn't tolerate anti-Semitism. Not now, not tomorrow, not in Haman's day, not in Hitler's day, not then. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, And I will bless those who bless me. And I will curse the ones who curse me. And it's our truth.